Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time for another Dispatch, and today we're dispatching from the Kennedy Space Center, where we were hoping to see the launch of Artemis 1, and this is a uncrewed mission to the moon and back. It's going to last a little over a month and they're going to be testing the hardware, but also doing a lot of experimentation to ensure that the astronauts that will be traveling beyond low Earth orbit will be safe on these long-duration missions to the moon and maybe beyond that. This is my second trip down here for this launch attempt, and unfortunately, uh, they just scrubbed the mission again. So this video is not going to end with a launch, but we met a lot of interesting people, astronauts, scientists, engineers, and we're going to hear from them all in just a second. Now, before we get into this dispatch, I want to thank our travel sponsor, Avello Airlines. You may not have heard of them before, but they are a new startup. They came to my home state of Connecticut first, to our little airport in New Haven, and they are rapidly growing. What they do is they take people from smaller airports to larger ones. They can very easily switch your flights around without fees and everything else. So check out their Instagram page at lon.tv slash Avello and sign up there. Just do a follow because they're giving away tickets all the time. You'll get announcements as to when uh, new cities are opening up. And I can tell you, having flown with them now three times, uh, they were really easy to work with. They get you here on time, in many cases early. In New Haven, they actually board the plane from both doors, so you get on a lot quicker. And it's been a very nice experience so far with the Velo. And for me, I can't beat the convenience because it's such a quick ride. So definitely check them out when you're traveling again. Take a look at the map and see if they're coming to a city near you. But it's definitely something that you should check out if you are traveling frequently and want to add some convenience to your life. Now, let's talk about this rocket. So this is the Space Launch System rocket. And I'm going to have Antonio pan over there a little bit. We're doing this dispatch style, so we'll be a little shaky here. That's okay. And the view that you're seeing is pretty much the view that we're seeing from the NASA press site here. This is an iconic location when you saw all those missions launching to the moon in the 60s and 70s. The image you saw on TV of the launch came from where we are standing. And we are pretty close to this rocket. Even though we're three miles away, it looks like we are right on top of it. And that's because it is so big. This rocket's about the size of the Statue of Liberty. So if you can imagine strapping rocket boosters to the Statue of Liberty, that's what you got there. On the top is the Orion spacecraft. That is the only part of this rocket that returns. Most of it is not reusable, although the components are from the space shuttle program. The rocket boosters came from shuttle, and the main engines on the core stage also came from space shuttles. These have flown before, so NASA has a lot of experience with some of the flight hardware on here, and that's why that rocket is standing on the pad right now and is, at the moment, the only crew-capable lunar rocket that is available to any nation on the planet. But there is a space race going on, and if Antonio pans to the right a little bit, what you will see is Launch Complex 39A, and that is where SpaceX launches astronauts from, along with other uh, Falcon 9 missions. And the uh, area that you see there with the crane is their preparation for their big rocket called Starship. So they are rapidly developing their system here. 
Now, the plan right now for these NASA moon missions is that astronauts will launch on the space launch system, the rocket that is built from shuttle components to the left, but when they get into space, they're going to move into Starship to land on the moon. So this will eventually become a joint mission between NASA's rocket and SpaceX's rocket, and we'll see how Starship develops here over time. One last thing to look at, of course, is the Vehicle Assembly Building, and this building is one of the largest in the world. They build the rockets vertically in there, and the rocket is so large that they have to open up all of the doors that you see on that gray section of the building to get the rocket out. The space shuttle was also constructed in there, but they only needed to open about three or four of those doors to get the shuttle out. So it just gives you a real sense of how much larger this rocket is. And it needs to be larger because it has to lift a lot of weight into Earth orbit first, but then, of course, onto the moon. And you have to bring all your fuel with you as well. There's a lot of uh, challenging engineering to come. And that's why we spoke with a lot of folks here a couple days ago about what's going up on this mission. There are experiments. There are uh, hardware that they're testing out because there's room inside of that uh, capsule to store all of that stuff. So let's hear what some of these uh, scientists and engineers and an astronaut had to say. All right, I'm here with an astronaut, astronaut Shannon Walker. Thanks for coming out and talking to us today. So how many space flights? I have had two space flights. I have stayed nearly a year in space, uh, about six months at a time. On the ISS? On the ISS. So let's talk about this mission. This is obviously the first step in a lot of steps that will happen. How is this different now than what it was when we went to the moon and didn't go back? It is different because we've got different goals that we're doing now because we do want to go to the moon and we want to stay there and we want to do more science than we did uh, before. So the Apollo was, is, was the preparatory step for what we are trying to accomplish now. And what do we have? What is it going to take to get back on the moon and get feet on the ground and be there? How, how much? How much more stuff do we have to go through? <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot yes to go to. That's why this this mission here is a test mission. So we've got to make sure that the rocket's ready to go, that the Orion spacecraft is ready to go. Uh, we got to make sure that we've got the new spacesuits to walk around on the moon. So those are still in development. Um, we've got to get our landers. So there's there's a fair bit of stuff left to do before we actually put boots on the moon. And what can we expect over the next couple of years? This is going to be a pretty quick cadence. We're going to be testing a lot. So what, what's, what's next after this one? So after this one, we're going to get the Orion spacecraft back, and we're going to pour over all the data to see you know, what worked, what didn't work. Do we need to tweak anything? And, and we're already building the, uh, the next rocket. Um, we got rocket parts all over here getting ready to be built up uh, to get ready for the next launch. Now, as an astronaut, you spent time in low-Earth orbit. Um, over almost a year, you said, and obviously there's there's radiation issues when you go beyond that that low Earth orbit protection. Um, what is happening within the training regimen for you that that is different now as you're looking at deep space versus low Earth orbit? Yeah, the training is actually not that much different. Uh, radiation is a problem, and that's one of the reasons that we've got some uh, mannequins on the Orion spacecraft that are instrumented to uh, study the radiation effects on the human body. And, and specifically, we have some that are, are that uh, represent the female body because we don't have as much data on that. That's an interesting topic because uh, there's never been a woman who's been able to walk on the moon yet. Um, I believe the, the, the hope here is that there will be a woman stepping out first when, when we land, hopefully. Are you, are you hoping it's going to be you? Oh, I would love for it to be me, but I don't think it will be, but one can always hope. <laughs> one can always hope. To my boss. Yeah, we'll we'll make, make a note of that. Everybody can write in and uh, make it happen. And uh, now my, I have two daughters at home. They're, they're nine and, and six, and they're interested in everything. Um, obviously, there's so many more opportunities now for women. So what would you suggest to, to young girls to, to, if they want to pursue a career in space, what to do? I would say for the young girls, one, definitely 
pursue a, a career in space. And then just don't listen to the noise all around you. Don't listen to if people are telling you that you can't do it. Just don't listen because you know you know what you're capable of and you can do. And you can do amazing things if you just put your mind to it and stay focused. What about persistence? Because sometimes you have to apply a couple of times, right, to get into the astronaut program? Absolutely. Persistence paid off. I um, applied... I got to the final stages five times over a period of 14 years before I was selected. So, yes, persistence pays off. Just keep keep trying. Keep trying. Keep trying. You never know um, what it's going to be that uh, NASA's going to be looking for when you apply. And so just, just keep after it. All right, here's something really exciting I was looking forward to checking out. This is a radiation vest, and I'm joined by Kat Cordaire from Lockheed Martin, who developed this. And tell us about this and why it's important. Yeah, so the Astrorad vest is a, a personal protective equipment. The idea is that it protects astronauts from the deep space radiation environment, in particular solar particle events. So those are particles that are, are emitted from the sun. Um, the reason it's really important right now during this, uh, these Artemis missions is we're actually entering a solar max period. Actually, the last couple of weeks, the sun's been really active. So uh, we are actually kind of hoping to get some good solar particle data uh, from this experiment. But even if we don't, uh, transiting through the Van Allen radiation belts gives us a similar particle set. So we'll actually get some really great data even from that transit. And this is not like the thing I'll wear at the dentist's office, right? Like, so, so it's not a lead suit. There's a lot of engineering that goes into this. So talk about that a little bit. Sure. So there's a couple different things. One is, um, no, it's not lead. It's actually made of high-density polyethylene. Polyethylene is very hydrogen-rich. Um, hydrogen is great at blocking those solar particles. Um, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is this is something that could have to be worn for several days at a time. That dentist vest can be heavy and bulky because you're wearing it for a few minutes. When we're talking about something for several days, we have to really engineer and design it properly so that the astronauts can move, can go about their day, and don't feel like they're bogged down by either the mass of the vest or, or a limited motion. So we've got the MARE experiment, the Matryoshka Astrorad radiation experiment here on Artemis 1. That's to test the radiation efficacy. And then we have another experiment on the ISS. We've actually had crew testing over the last two years, giving us a lot of feedback on the comfort. Comfort's going to be key if you have to wear this for a couple of days. But even, and, I, and we have some materials down here, and we'll just lift this up for a second. Um, this is rather heavy on Earth, but in space, no weight. Yeah. Well, no weight, but it's, you can still feel the inertia of it. So, um, yes, there's no real weight to it, but um, from based on what we've heard on the ISS, it does feel a little different. It takes them a little bit of time to get used to their new inertia. Um, but yeah. They're adding mass, so that's creating... Exactly. So anytime you add mass, you get a little bit more of that inertia feel. Um, but yeah, this is the exact materials on the inside. You'll see that it's actually really flexible. Um, that's part of the really uh, uh, ingenious engineering design of it, uh, because if this was just a rigid piece of plastic, you would feel like you couldn't move. But allowing this design actually allows for the bendability, the flexibility, um, and comfort, as well as protection. And when we talk about protection, um, there there's different things that have to be protected at different levels of, of importance. So it's not just a, a static protection layer. You're targeting certain organs, is that right? Correct. So we use what we call selective shielding. Uh, so different organs are, are have different susceptibility to radiation. Uh, for women, which is the, the model of the vest and the phantoms, uh, the, the dummies that we have on the uh, Mare Artemis One mission, those are actually for the female form. Uh, breast tissue, uterine tissue are, are highly susceptible to radiation. So what we do is in those areas, we'll have um, a bit thicker 
uh, material. So we'll have some of the thicker hexes, we call them, uh, along those organs to actually protect a little bit better. Other regions, we can thin it out. Again, that adds to the comfort level of the vest. There's a trade-off between comfort and functionality. Oh, totally. I mean, if you're going to be wearing this for a few days, and if it's not comfortable, the astronauts can't do their job. So it's really important to provide protection, so reduce that overall radiation dosage that the astronauts get, and have something that's comfortable enough to actually wear day to day. How do you measure the effectiveness of it? Do you have something inside that can pick up radiation traveling through the suit? So on the ISS experiment, we do not have any dosimeters, any radiation measurements. The ISS experiment is purely ergonomics and really human factors centric. So we actually use a series of, um, of videos where we do specific ranges of motion and surveys to really get that feedback from the crew. So they tell us about areas that are uncomfortable. Um, they've actually modified the vest on the ISS uh, to meet their needs. Uh, there's now Velcro all over it. Um, so just some of those really key things from the comfort perspective. Uh, now the MARI experiment is where all the radiation sensors are. So we have about 5,600 passive and, I, and um, also we have a number of active radiation sensors uh, on the torsos. One torso um, is the control, so that's Helga. She's not wearing the vest. And then Zohar is uh, wearing the vest. So we'll have our control and the vest, and we'll be able to hit the same radiation environment and really get an understanding of uh, the protective effectiveness of the vest. And you must be pretty excited, having worked on this for so long, to actually see how it works, right? Yes. Uh, I've been on the project since 2017. So, um, and I'm, I manage both the ISS experiment and uh, the MARE. So uh, it's just really exciting anytime you get to see your hardware fly. What background did you have for, for an educational standpoint to get to where you are? What, what do you have to study to, to work on something like this? Yeah, so uh, my background is actually I have uh, degrees in aeronautical and mechanical engineering, undergraduate, uh, and I have a master's in space systems. Uh, so my other day job, I actually do, um, I work in our research and development for our deep space exploration area. So looking at technologies like this, uh, technologies that we can use to actually uh, explore uh, robotically even deeper into our planetary system and uh, heliophysics and astrophysics. So um, I'm an engineer by trade, but also uh, a scientist by um, occupation. Very exciting. It must be really fun to go to work every day. Yeah, um, it's fun. It's, it's really great when you have a job where you can wake up and be excited to show up and, uh, and just learn. Every day is learning experience. All right, I'm here with Kirsten Johnston from the Johnson Space Center. So you don't, run the, you don't own the place, but... Oh, no, sadly not. It's a coincidence, but you're, you're in charge of the suits here. So what are we looking at? I'm deputy team lead for the Ryan Crew Survival Systems Project out of Johnson Space Center. So that means providing all the crew survival hardware that the crew might need on future Artemis missions. Um, what do I have here is the launch and entry suit that the crew will wear during launch and landing, the, the nominal phases of flight, but also can be worn by the crew during any emergency situations that could occur while they're in orbit going around the moon and coming back. So for launching and landing back to Earth, the moon might be a different suit. Correct, correct. So actually walking on the moon will be a different suit that NASA is currently working with some outside contractors to build. Um, this one could maybe end up being one that they use during the ascent and descent of that lunar lander. But for right now, it's very specific to Orion launch and landing. So this suit can be pressurized up to 8 PSI, which this is probably the first suit in history that will be able to go up to that pressure. Um, normally gets pressurized to 4.3 PSI. But yeah, you can see that this suit uh, will look very similar to what was used in shuttle. It is orange, which is used for visibility purposes for landing, recovery. If the crew gets out in the water, it's easy for recovery forces to spot them. 
Um, but there are some new features that we've added since Shuttle, sprucing it up and, and making it adaptable for Orion. So you can see here, we have two abdominal fittings, which are used to provide gas to the crew when they're in the suit. So the gas comes in, routes up to uh, their oral nasal region on their face, helps blow out any carbon dioxide that they're producing. Uh, and the gas is actually returned through this outer, uh, this other umbilical fitting back to the vehicle for it to be recycled and regenerated for crew reuse. They're plugged into the Orion spacecraft. And so the Orion is scrubbing the carbon dioxide out? Yeah, so the suit works jointly with Orion. The vehicle is what provides the suit its pressurization capability. It provides the life support capability in terms of breathable environment. Um, it also provides the liquid cooling to need so that the crew, when they're wearing a liquid cooling garment underneath, can stay cool while wearing the suit. That's a great segue to the liquid cooling garment. Yeah, so this is a liquid cooling garment example that was used during shuttle. This is not what they'll look like in Orion, but it still provides folks an idea of what it what it means to be wearing one of these. So if I kind of open it up a little bit, it's it's basically a garment that the crew can easily put on and has about 150 feet of tubing woven throughout it. So it provides direct skin contact. And when cooling waters run through here, it provides that, that cooling effect on their skin as they're doing any activity that's requiring a metabolic load. It allows them to stay cool. I see it's branded Patagonia, so it's, it's like an off-the-shelf thing. Yeah, yeah. And, the, I mean, anything to easier adapt and, and make things a little bit more cost-effective is the name of the game of what we're doing, right? We want to use taxpayer money as well as possible. So in shuttle, they actually had a particular landing case, abort case, where they might land in the North Atlantic. So having a Patagonia-style one that was a little warmer, a little thicker, helped in that case. So what won't have necessarily Patagonia going forward, but something similar will be used in Orion. That goes underneath the Correct. So this is worn. Um, there is a, a layer underneath, kind of like a workout style outfit that they wear underneath this. But this is worn as close to the body as possible to provide that cooling effect. So whenever the crew has this on, know that they'll have this on underneath and they have that uh, cooling capability. So one of the other pieces of equipment that we have here are the boots that the crew will wear during the Artemis mission. So uh, this is a brand new design that we are introducing and it is produced with our uh, suit manufacturer, David Clark, in partnership with Reebok. Um, so they are very lightweight, very easily to wear and put on. Um, they're perfect for launch pad emergency egress if that were to happen for the crew. Um, one of the coolest features about this is on the bottom of the boots is this little metallic um, insert that is used when the crew is in the vehicle. It allows them to attach themselves to the seat um, to help with... Uh, seat flail for any crazy landing loads that may come about in an emergency situation. So it keeps it, their body protected as best as possible during any phases of flight. Now the boots are not pressurized, but there's a little booty, I guess. That, so it's kind of like a, like, a, like a pair of pajamas. You have the little feet. Correct, correct. So think of these suits as footy pajamas that you would put, you know, um, a small baby in. So the suit, when it has... Um, the gloves on it and when it has a helmet on, it's fully pressurizable. So you can see here the are the boots or the booties that are integrated directly to the suit. So with these on, the, a person in the suit will be able to be pressurized, even if they don't necessarily have these on. All right, so this is the helmet, and it have to, has to be pressurized and strong enough to prevent head injuries, I'm guessing, right? That is 100% correct. So actually what I'm holding here is one that was used in shuttle. So you'll see some of the parts are missing in it. 
Um, we use it for training currently. But yeah, like you said, the key for the helmet is to help maintain pressure when the crew is needing, uh, needing it in the suit. But it's also needing to, to be designed so it doesn't cause injury protection issues when the crew is in there. So one of the things we focused on going forward into Orion and the Artemis missions is making sure the helmet, through a lot of acceleration sled testing up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, that this will protect them uh, as necessarily as possible and not cause additional injury. And we hope nothing would ever happen, but if they, if they lost all um, pressure in, inside of Orion, this would sustain them for how long? Yeah, so that's one of the novel things about the Orion suit going forward. This suit is specifically designed to um, create a pressurized environment for up to 144 hours continuously. It's drastically more than what we ever had in shuttle because we're going beyond low Earth orbit. So we need that capability if there's, an, if there's an MMOD strike or something else abnormal happens and we lose pressure in the cabin, that longest duration that we could possibly see is six days. So. A lot of the testing we do on site at Johnson Space Center now is to prove out that the design and construction of this can can hold up for that 144 hours, which we've been able to prove out. So, so it's a real spacesuit. It is. It is a real spacesuit. It is necessary for the crew if something were to go wrong to have this have this available. And before we close out, if somebody wants to get into this kind of work, are you a mechanical engineer? What kind of engineer are you? So I actually studied aerospace engineering in school, but I work alongside electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, biomedical engineers. So it's really just having a love for the business, having a love of learning to keep expanding your knowledge. Um, a lot of the work we do is human factors based, too. So we work alongside folks in that realm. So really, if you just kind of have that engineering mindset, have that background, this is a line of business you can definitely look into. And we also had the chance to talk with Dr. Thomas Zerbikin, who is the associate administrator for NASA for their science mission directorate because there's more than just engineering happening on this flight. Let's hear what he has to say about some of the science objectives. For me, some of the most exciting science relates to uh, both exploring the moon. We have two uh, missions that are mapping the moon for water and other kind of uh, resources that are there. We all have radiation experiments looking at biology, and then we have some technology demonstrations as well. So together, uh, these uh, 10 or so investigations really advance science and take every opportunity of the Artemis One mission. There hasn't been a lot of opportunity to study radiation and its effects on the body. How dangerous is it out there? Is it a constant threat or is it something that comes up every time you have solar activity? The way you should think about radiation is like walking in Florida. Every once in a while, it's just raining, kind of drizzling and so forth. And, you know, you, you, of course, if you're out there, you get wet. But every once in a while, there's also a downpour. So the galactic cosmic rays, they're always there, they're constant and so forth. If you go far, especially to Mars, which is, of course, in our eyesight already, that is the key issue. So the drizzle, the constant thing is, is actually the biggest danger. But every once in a while, there's a downpour, a solar storm uh, that's really taking off and ejection from the sun. And during that time, you, you have to really be careful. Like you, if you had during a extra vehicular activity, it would not be healthy for you. You may get your lifetime dose. Uh, as an astronaut in that one event. So you have to learn to do both, deal with both. What are you most excited about moving forward in, in the science directorate for NASA and the future of these moon missions? So from the beginning, the Artemis mission has been a combination of science and human exploration. And the farther we get into the Artemis program, that lever is shifting to the right, right? Right now, it's about testing out the engineering systems, but we're not missing any opportunities to put science on. It's just so exciting to bring uh, humans to the surface of the moon and really address science, that, the likes of which we, frankly, I have no recollection. Like, together with most people, 
most humans alive today have no recollection of, of ever us doing this. We're going back to a moon that has a lot more exciting signs and questions that are open for us that, uh, than we had when we left it uh, in 72 after the Apollo program. So it's about volatiles. It's about that water cycle on the moon. It's about the chronology of the solar system. It's about processes that are there. And l you also using the moon as a platform perhaps for astrophysical observation. So, so there's a lot of ideas and the best ideas probably we haven't thought of yet. So I really enjoyed meeting all these folks out here and kind of absorbing all the enthusiasm these folks have for the work that they do. And this is kind of, for me, a very re-energizing activity to come down here and see people doing their best work for the benefit of mankind. And it gives you some hope for humanity. Unfortunately, we did not get to see a launch on this trip. I will try to get back when they do uh, try to launch this thing, but no promises there. But I am always eager to come down here and cover launches. And hopefully you found this interesting. Definitely give the video a like to boost it up in the algorithm. These videos always struggle a bit on my channel, but they're among my favorite things to do. So that'll do it for this coverage of Art Artemis 1 for now, but I'm sure we'll be back with more in the near future, and hopefully we'll see a launch. If not, we'll try to get down for Artemis 2. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, Brian Parker, Hot Sauce and Video Games, Baby Metal Fox God, Tom Albrecht, Amda Brown, Matt Zagaya, and Tech Time with Eric. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.